Today's episode is brought to you by our longtime sponsor, Simply Faster. There are a lot of sports technology companies out there, but Simply Faster is the only website you can go to that features an online store that covers the bandwidth of training technology, from force plates to timing systems to muscle stimulators and more. Some products of Simply Faster that I use and love include things like the Freelap Timing System in K-Box or coaches' favorites such as GymAware. Recently, Simply Faster has added two units that as a coach, you should definitely take a look at. The first is the Muscle Lab Contact Grid, which is an extremely affordable and portable step-by-step, literally, system to collect data on jumps, bounds, sprints, agility, hurdle hops, and really as much as your creative mind can imagine. In what used to take a whole runway worth of collecting of data collecting strips, the contact grid does it all with only two small strips that together cover up to 40 meters of sprinting. Ground contact time, step rates, rhythms, and beyond are at your fingertips with this device. Another new unit, the VO2 Master, is an ultra-portable gas exchange analyzer. Don't guess on energy system development when you can get direct insight into VO2 capabilities in relation to specific sports skills, rather than... Uh, being hooked up to tubes on a treadmill, or worse yet, a cycle ergometer to get a VO2 max. Think of the VO2 master as your own gas exchange lab without the tubes and wires. Deepen your analysis in the specific conditioning preparation of your athletes with the VO2 master today. These products and incredible customer service make Simply Faster your go-to for your sports technology needs. I'm happy to have partnered with them in sponsoring this podcast. Their support has been tremendous. So check them out today at simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. Welcome to episode 186 of the Just Fly Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Smith. Thanks for being here today. And we have a question and answer episode with yours truly. So for today, I will be taking your questions and giving you my best answers. So we threw out the lines on a few platforms, uh, Instagram stories, Facebook, and Twitter. And thank you for everybody who contributed a question. Hopefully, I'll get to the vast majority of them. And I've been through so many questions. I often have times, or so many of these question and answer episodes, I often have to go back and double check and make sure I haven't double covered everything or any question from before. So if you've listened to some Q&As in the past and I'm answering a question twice, I, I do apologize, but I try my best not to double cover any of these. And so thanks again for everyone who sent a question in. I really enjoy hearing what you guys have to say and seeing what's on your mind in the world of sports performance training and this whole world of athletics. So the first question comes from Chris McCormick. Chris says, uh, how have your thoughts changed on training team sports over the past one to two years and what things you um, may have added to your teams? So I'll answer this from, I guess, what I've done from just a general perspective. And really that is make a higher percentage of the total work uh, body weight and making a higher percentage of the training a little more uh, intuition based uh, or unscripted at least the early part like the warm-up more unscripted versus the latter portion of the workload so um, my my buddy paul cater from uh, Celine owns the alpha project and salinas i talk with him frequently about the idea of really just well uh, really straightforward just trying to not make athletes robots trying to give them freedom and creativity and problems to solve and, and being in flow in a session and I think an unscripted portion of the work uh, can definitely do that. And for me, a lot of that unscripted work is in the bodyweight medium. So crawls and, and monkey bars and uh, things like uh, you know, even um, a, lot of, a lot of things as well that I've learned from like Dr. Tommy John, like, like various uh, hip circles and single leg RDLs and things on one leg. And lightweight bodyweight options done for high repetitions to really cover 
uh, basic human movement and motor patterns. Uh, I like to get into a lot of medicine ball work. I like to integrate a lot of games and things um, that I've learned from like Rafe Kelly and ways to basically make sure an athlete is emotionally ready once we get to harder portions of the workout or not even harder, but I guess more scripted, more traditional, more block-esque versions of things. Uh, One thing I've done as well is that I've increased the relative proportion of, as I said, body weight, but also extreme isometric work done at the tail end of the workout. I would say I've traded a decent chunk of traditional barbell lifting for extreme isometric work, and I've seen a great payoff in terms of injury rates and decrease uh, decreases there. I also feel like it's just it's a good thing to to do that type of thing as well because I think it's good to hone your eye for movement in the body weight medium because that's what athletes compete in. So uh, I'm always trying to do just a little bit more work there, and just because it's body weight uh, doesn't mean that it's easy and doesn't mean that there's not an intensity to it. Uh, that's not the case at all. Uh, if there, if anything, a lot of the body weight work should be done with the same equal intensity to um, I, and it's a different type, right? You're not tunneling as much, but to a, a, a heavy set of lifting like bench press or squats, there should be everything you're doing is important. And so cultivating th- flow through the whole workout, whether it's whether it's a crawl, whether it's a lunge, whether it's a monkey bar, extreme isometric, or a main set of work, it's all it all matters. It's all the same, and it all should be done with a high expectation of movement quality and so uh, for me personally actually i i get a a lot of enjoyment out of creating unscripted uh, body weight based work and i often also and this is something i'm doing more recently as i really look at uh, how the music uh, cultivates that and caters to that so using stuff that's a little bit more in the edm or deep house even uh, genres can keep that rate of work and and put athletes in flow better for that type of stuff. And I think it's all really important, especially to, uh, and the last thing I'll say is I've definitely done more unilateral work than bilateral work just because it's, and along on the coattails of that Cam Joss, Chad Dennis, and Cal Dietz episode, I just think that there's so much gold in just the functionality. How do we move? And when you're training team sports, I we definitely have to ask ourselves, is it, would we rather have an extra inch on a vertical jump maybe um, an extra cut, an extra three or four hundredths off of a 40-yard dash, or would we rather have an athlete who's a little more robust and resilient? I mean, it's an argument that with the single versus double leg, we can also make the argument that it doesn't even matter. Uh, But that's not really the point of this. I'll just say that I've uh, added in a little bit more single leg work throughout the year. That also makes up a higher percentage. So moral of the story is bilateral sagittal plane exercises. I still have them in there, but they play a little bit less of a role than they used to. Okay, second question is from Brandon Green. He says, what is your opinion or viewpoint on information that we have acquired from the Soviets or any of the uh, former Eastern Bloc nations? So I think this is a good question just in the sense of a lot of people will say, well, the Soviets were, you know, using all these steroids and the Eastern Bloc were, it was just steroids that was there due to, or creating their success. So we just shouldn't really hold their training to a higher regard. And yes, obviously these athletes were definitely masterful users of steroids but i do think and i'll just say this is i i and i have like a lot of the texts and your dr yuri verkashansky huge influence on me book like books like super training and things like that i just have a couple of things to say and one is if you look at the quality of the research that was coming out back then and the 70s from russia like the studies in super training are just awesome studies they're 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 very applied studies that i 
don't think that we really do as much today because I, I mean, like the funding isn't there. We have untrained or recreationally trained college study, uh, students, not high performance athletes doing this. And it's not, it was more of a government thing back then. It was a whole nation really trying to spearhead these efforts. And so the quality of the work done was just fantastic. And then I'll also say too, when you, if you look at like the technical models, if you go to track and field and you look at the technical models and triple jump is one I like in particular, uh, you look at these, um, I think it's a Ukrainian female who has the world record. But if you look at like her style, it was, as Darian Barr has shown to me, it's a uh, high, flat, high waveform. It's not like a flat, flat, flat. And these uh, these athletes, they're, in my opinion, a lot of their technical models even were superior to what we have now or what we think is the optimal technique now. And if you watch those athletes, it's not just, they're not just more powerful because of the steroids they also had a superior technique and a system that was behind them so i think there's a lot more to look at than just that so i am definitely a huge um i the russian and soviet stuff means a lot to me i don't uh bypass it because of the whole steroid thing and i know that i think we'd be naive to say that the russians and and the eastern Bloc were the only people using steroids in that era so um yeah i think it's certainly valuable information and i think it's good things to look at Okay, next one. Uh, this is uh, Citric O'Toole, and he says, uh, what are your thoughts on the role of ankle strength in maximizing the single leg vertical jump? So this is a great question. Ankle strength, foot strength, very important. And so the, and I want to say, I think this goes back to Angus Young quite a few podcasts ago uh, where he was talking about an athlete that was like blowing everybody out of the water in acceleration and counter movement jump. And But it came to top end speed, I think, they they weren't quite as good. And one of the things that was a factor was their foot or ankle strength was not that great. And so I do think that the, the foot and ankle, and, and you could call it like a fascial, the fascial line, the fascial system, uh, it becomes more important the, the faster contact times get. Uh, so generally speaking, it is really important. It's definitely not everything. I think a lot of times it comes with the territory if your feet are sensing and working properly. So if my feet can sense the ground well, I have good biomechanics. Uh, a lot of times that's just going to come along naturally. But if not, uh, things there's a lot of things that can help. We've had Chang Ji on the show talking about hyperarch hops. Um, even stuff as simple as single leg line hops can be awesome for helping to improve that. And things that I like doing and have been leaning more toward these days in the world of motor learning is combining these things. So if you're doing some single leg vertical jumps, doing some single leg line hops and making it a complex or complexing single leg uh, jump work with sensory work and with high rep elastic work. And we're making this a combo to almost like a sandwich to, to really give a full, uh, you're feeding sensory work in, you're feeding activation and, and uh, activation high rep work in, and you're feeding the actual skill. And so we're putting this all in one thing. I think the output is, uh, is pretty good. All right, next question is Jonas Dodu. Uh, Jonas, thanks for asking the, these questions. I appreciate it. And uh, the first one is, if you have a U20 development squad of sprinters, what would your training menu be? And what types of planning schemes would you apply? Of course, it depends. So what groupings of types would you create? And how would this affect your decision making? So I'll try to keep this answer brief. It really could be a whole show in and of itself. So I'll very, I'll touch on some things very quickly from a general, a specific perspective. So general and specific, and then some nuts and bolts. And I'll, we'll try to go from there. And so I have worked with athletes in that 
And uh, I'm not sure what age exactly, what span exactly that is, the U20, but I have worked with 19 and 20-year-old sprinters uh, in my time at Wilmington College. And so I can give you some anecdotes of things that I did there that I've really found successful, as well as things I've learned since then that I've integrated into my own thoughts and processes on speed training. And so the first things uh, from a general perspective very quickly is I've done nothing but go in the direction of making training uh, more reactive, more intentful, things that mimic elements of team sport and that being particularly in the off season. And when we would look at, for example, a younger athlete, like a 16, 17 year old uh, for high school here in the States, it might be someone who would play football in the fall and then do track in the spring, or maybe they do basketball and then track and field, or they're doing some sport and then they're doing track and field. And I think that the team sport offers so many things to the track athlete from a movement literacy, a movement library, being reactive, not overthinking and letting the body instinctively and intuitively put movement together. Um, granted, we all know those of us who are in the track world or in looking at upright speed, the way that a team sport athlete runs is not the same way that an elite track sprinter runs. So there's some certain nuances and ways we want to shuttle things to get them to perform a little better in that, in that um, essence of things. But uh, the reactivity, uh, the things that I like to port over, and I think this is especially valuable for a younger, a slightly younger group, is I think it's valuable because we, we still want to maintain some level of well-roundedness um, before those higher performance years. And I think that it also really fits with uh, intentionality and using sensation and using reaction to cultivate um, the not only the work effect, but also to help with technique. Because I think that, um, I mean, there's certainly a spectrum of self-organization and, and uh, all the way into uh, internal cueing. But I do think that you can't go wrong by giving athletes more situations to be reactive with, um, with technique in mind and what you're aiming for. So uh, things that I like there and elements that would fit into, and, and I'll get into my models and, and um, the, some basic constructs, but some basic ways that fit is doing things like, let's just say tempo training. I like tempo training. I think it's good. But doing a tempo where maybe a 200-meter interval was split into 20-meter segments and doing maybe the same time but doing it in a 20-meter in, 20-meter out model with a little bit of reactive transition in each of those 20-meter segments or perhaps doing the first 50 meters of the sprint in a constraint such as a squatted run or a one-arm run or a speed skip and then doing the last uh, 150 as normal just to put something that's more active and alive into that training piece. Uh, you can do the same thing really in any sprint distance. And I do tend to, nowadays I really bias my speed training into more, and I've learned this from a Darian Bar, just doing more ins and outs and more things that uh, offer transitional experiences. And I think those transitional experiences can really help to build technique in a way that doesn't, um, that's not an overthinking or an over overly positionalized or overly conceptualized manner, if that makes sense. Um, so within the actual scope of training, I'll, I'll just briefly touch on some things that I did that I thought that I found successful in my time as a Division three full-time track coach and then uh, with some nuances of what I've uh, picked up since then. But in terms of uh, individualization or groupings or saying, okay, this training works for you, this training works for you, uh, I go back to Randy Huntington a little bit and I, and how he had mentioned that some athletes do better on a Monday, like a Monday, Wednesday, Friday type format with a low intensity day that's in between days. And some athletes tend to do better stacking days back to back. And from my understanding, a more elastic athlete, which I am, 
uh, does better with like a Monday, Tuesday, high intensity, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, high intensity type model, um, where maybe the pure classical uh, sprinter with that tissue type for uh, sprinting and maybe maybe that's more muscle driven is uh, is could perhaps do better on that Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And we know we have Charlie Francis is high low and you look at Ben Johnson is maybe more of that, I guess, quote unquote, muscle driven. But I've, I think those even those distinctions of muscle and fascia, I think, are very there's a lot of gray there. And so um, my. Uh, I, I kind of have a wave-like format in the way I see things on some level. And I got this from Alex. Um, one thing, yeah, Alex Vasquez wrote a book called Sky High, and I saw this here, and I've done things like that, is doing training for a time that kind of runs like that, that might run on those that four-day model that might fit with the more elastic paradigm, and then running training for a time where you do a Monday, Wednesday, Friday so you're all giving you're altering this little bit of an emphasis and my fall we would do uh, we would do that a little bit and we do a lot of hills and tempo and weights and things like that for uh, a short period of time all grass and that was its whole theme in and of itself we stayed completely off the track and I wanted to I want I did that for a reason because I just don't think you should be on the track all year you need to again and you could say along the same lines of staying reactive um, being reactive doing other things having a theme of other things and so for me the more things I could do that wasn't actually sprinting on a track for a time period the better Uh, when I got to mainline training a lot of what I did was in the Charlie Francis vein of Monday Wednesday Friday and so I'll just go into some ideas there Um, but I want to touch on one of my favorite models is a Monday Tuesday Thursday Friday model where Monday and Thursday, you're doing weightlifting and then some coordinative training. You could say it's uh, any anything on the range from a, um, a, a even like tempo, like I described, with nuances to it, like intensive nuances to various sprint drills and and or rudiment jump drills or hop series or stuff that's not really into that plyometric intensity. But I always felt like pairing lifting with stuff that was a little bit quicker, poppier, snappier was good. And then the Tuesday and uh, Friday would be uh, heavy like force plyometric emphasis so you could have bounding complexes and hurdle hops and things like that and for sprinters obviously you would do sprinting but I have had I had athletes get set lifetime sprint PRs I remember I had a pole vaulter set lifetime sprint PRs who was a senior doing that work with no really barely any sprinting outside of his pole vault running just doing the weights on the two days and the plyos on the two days and he was setting lifetime sprint PRs. And so to me, that was the power of same but different. But I think that, that you can get in a little trouble with that if you go too high-powered too early. And that was a nuance I wanted to say for the, the younger athlete, that U20, uh, I would be just um, cautious of how much I escalate heavy weightlifting and heavy, quote-unquote, heavy plyometrics early on. I would try to make everything much more of a coordinative flair. I, I look at team sports, and I look at all the little nuances of a team sport, and I would really try to add those things into plyometrics. And I've been doing a little bit more work and posting more about some adjustments in that realm lately, but uh, definitely more in the coordination realm for a, a younger athlete. And so that's one mode to me, that's a high intensity mode and perhaps it does work better for an elastic athlete, but I like that. And then I like the Charlie Francis model of things uh, where it's like a Monday, Wednesday, Friday, where there's high intensity speed or sprinting. And then the other days are either tempo or circuits or things like that. But everything, the tempo and circuit days are to me are always high variability. And there's, there's a lot of intention, as I mentioned in my previous example, I've gotten to the place where, uh, and this is just a general thing, but uh, I've gotten to the place where I really mix in on those speed days. I don't try to make them 
um, just pure, like, okay, today you're doing four sixties today. You're doing, uh, some speed endurance. You're going to do two one twenties or two one fifties, or today's just, uh, uh, a fly 10 day. I really like, uh, complexes. So one thing that Chris Corfus and Dan Fichter had talked about at a track football consortium was, um, a workout for top end speed where it was a fly 10, a complex of a fly 10, a straight leg bound hurdle hops and single leg line hops for a longer period of time. That was like a tail and high, high, uh, a higher density foot training stimulus at the end. And they, and I like that stuff. Cause I think that you can take that and you can take a little bit of the, um, emphasis off of the sprint per se in, in some manner, like it's all important saying that, look, it's not just the fly. It's everything is important here. And I like even doing speed gate golf, uh, in that context. And I think that in that scenario, it's, it's good because you're getting a lot of coordination into one, th- into one package. It's a, it's a big coordination package. It's not just doing one thing. And so that's something I think, especially with more developing athletes, the more things that we can utilize in this package that builds the main skill rather than just going to the main skill, the better. And so um, I, hope that, I hope that makes sense in a way. Um, I know that, it, again, this could be a huge answer, but I just try to boil it down to the ways that I cultivate intention and coordination and the few ways to maybe stay away from some of the higher intensity stuff as long as, as, long as possible by creative uses uh, elsewhere. So um, I hope, if nothing else, that answer intrigued you. But again, I'm, I'm honored that you asked me in the first place for it. I know the other question that Jonas asked, and thanks for this one, is a summary of your book. Um, so I'm assuming that's a summary of my book, Speed Strength. So thanks for asking about that. Uh, if I had to give a summary of that book, which I'm hugely proud of, um, is that just to think critic, it's to think critically at the timing and mechanisms of sprinting and acceleration to look beyond uh, the things that we would just typically say and might take for granted and go into the actual the actual timings and the actual interactions and a total holistic view of what's going on. And uh, to know sprinting well enough to know how this filters into everything else. I think once we get a really good and accurate picture of sprint mechanics, that we can then filter that over into the weight room and plyometrics and drills and how this all relates together. And so that was really what the book was all about, is just to take this deep dive into each of those components and um, then finally putting it together in practical training arrangement. And uh, it's just, it's a book that I'll say Adarian Barr had a massive impact on because I had this idea of a sprint mechanics chapter and then I met Adarian and I slowly started rewriting it as I found the things that he was saying to be true. And uh, just a lot of mind blown moments. And it was this re-engineering of my own thought of exactly what sprinting is. And in the process, I actually spent, uh, set my own 10 meter fly PR at age 34, which was awesome. And I never thought I would do that. So it was uh, just a great, it was a great, great experience and a lot of fun to write. All right. Uh, next question would be jgill 182 uh, which is the question is for the purpose of dunk training when implementing sprint and bounding work, what total volume would be adequate in a training session? Uh, 500 meters more or less. So for dunk training, um, I would say, so if it's, here's the thing. It's so sprinting and bounding. If it's sprinting work, I'd like the idea of 300 meters or less. Um, but it kind of depends on how you run it. Uh, if it's all maximal, and I think this is a question that maybe we'll get to, if it's all like just pure max training, uh, then I'd say 200 meters or less. If it's kind of waved, like I, I've been really enjoying the idea of waving stuff, like not every sprint is all out. Like, 
you like Charles Poliquin would say always wave load. So I like this idea of maybe every third sprint is a max sprint and the other ones have different nuances to them that they're not quite maximal. And so in that case, you actually could do more. Um, but again, we then we start to get ideas of time efficiency and whatnot. So well, just from a general perspective, if it's all max, I would say 200 meters of sprinting or less and probably 150 to 200 meters of bounding or less. If that bounding is pure maximal, uh, maybe 150 to 100 just kind of depends. Um, I've done 300 meters of bounding in a session when training for high jump twice a week, and it helped me a lot, but also my knees were really getting it. Um, 300 meters is a lot of bounding. Uh, if you're really built for it, you can do it, um, and then you just have to make sure you're uh, doing it on grass generally is uh, a little bit better than other surfaces. Okay. A few people asked, not just one person, but, and, and thanks for taking the time to make these questions. I think maybe I've done enough Q and A's that people are finally just asking this one. But the question is, if you could only do one lift, uh, just so just one lift or one training movement, what would it be? Uh, so that's a tough question because any training movement you are going to eventually adapt to and need something else. But if it was one movement, it would be sprinting and all variations within because there's so much coordination. The combination of coordination and velocity does rise all ships. Like um, guest Andy Agarth has said, if uh, during like track season where there's a lot of maximal sprinting being done, the power clean will often go up. And just sprinting can definitely raise all ships. It is the classical, um, I think, example or expression of human power and coordination. So for sure, sprinting. And, and again, that umbrella I think encapsulates all forms of sprinting, not just, I don't think it would be just, just sprinting 40 meters as fast as you can, but all, all variations, all types and all distances on some level. But if it was a weight room activity, I would just say hex bar deadlift because you could take all athletes come in all shapes and sign sizes and hip alignments and postures. And if you listen to my recent podcast, um, in terms of going into, uh, with Mike Kozak and Steven Laflamme and we just how, um, different athletes with different presentations are going to do better with different squats. So if I say a front squat, well, now I'm kind of nixing some of these athletes with the posterior Hank Hill butt. And if I say a Zercher squat, then I'm kind of not doing as well for my anteriorly tilted athletes and this stuff. Uh, anyways, so uh, hex bar deadlift just because no matter what your alignments and your levers are, and I would say a high handle at that, you can make it work and it, you can make it a safe and effective way to get some good vertical loading in the system, axial loading in the system. And if I could only use that, I'm just going to use a lot of other, um, in the weight room, I'm just going to use a lot of other stuff outside of it to try to get what I need there. All right. Next question. Uh, Max uh, Meritado, I hope I said that right, uh, said, how much tempo work do you really think high jumpers need? And so we could expand this question because I get this is a specific question. I'm not sure how many people listening to this are um, are actually high jumpers or train high jumpers. I think a lot of people are interested in jumping and uh, vertical jumping and dunking in general and those types of things. Uh, but uh, let's expand it to just jumping off one leg uh, because I think that there is, um, there, is, there is something going on here in terms of uh, longer sprints and longer running and the same kind of stimulation that leads to better jumps off one leg. I've gotten anecdotes from dunkers, I think in Europe, as I remember, I'm not, I forget who told me this, um, but he said that he was doing 120 meter sprints and his single leg jump was going up. And this is a dunker, not a track guy, but doing like 120, 150 meter sprints in his single leg jump, but it went up like maybe three or four inches because of that. And so there, there is some power in doing that stuff. I think there's, 
I, I don't think everyone needs to necessarily do just that. I think if you just played basketball, like that would probably be fine too, or something along the, because you're, to me, it's, it's, it's stimulation, it's high reps. And this idea that I think we're just so in this idea that we just have to have max power and max force and anything that's higher rep is going to make us slow twitch animals. And it's going it, to, we're, we're just, we're going to be oxidative and slow twitch and we're not going to do very well. But I've found that a lot of things require higher reps on some, on some level. Um, so the tempo, I think it does good things in terms of decreasing the electrical resistance in the muscle. It makes us a little more efficient. I think it hones the elasticity. It's great for calf and ankle and foot strength. And I think there is, if you look at even like the repetition without repetition idea that every step might be subtly different. Maybe the feet are getting subtly different stimuli as well. Or you could just do a tattoo Starzinski and run on like a an uneven trail and do your tempo there. And I'm sure you're just doubling up on all the benefits. So I think it's good. I don't think it's necessary. Um, but in terms of my thoughts on using it with training high jumpers, I, I do think it's good. But I think that the intention and having and not just doing it for the sake of doing it. Like I wouldn't, I mean, I've, I've had success myself. Um, and then even working on the university level training track athletes doing some level of tempo, maybe five or six, two hundreds, or I would often just have them do four or five, cut that off, do some rudiment drills, basic single leg, low intensity hopping and call that more of a structural day. And I always thought that was good. Um, but I think that it just, as long as the intentions there, I think running that stuff over hurdles and, throwing some unique challenges just to maintain the intention of it is solid. And uh, I think the closer we can make it from a flow state perspective to playing a game of basketball, I think the better. So um, yeah, I think it's it's good stuff, but I think there's a lot of ways to, to actually get that done. Okay. Uh, Health Speed says, what is your take on maximum speed sprinting as opposed to slightly submax? Uh, do you need to practice it or not? So what I'm thinking here is this, the thought of, um, if you want to sprint for the people say, if you want to be fast, you have to sprint fast and you have to sprint over 95% of your uh, ability to get faster versus, uh, someone who might say, well, you don't actually have to sprint quite that fast. I don't know, maybe 85 or 95% is fine. And so, well, my take on it is this is one of the best. And I mentioned this in, I think a recent post was that one of my favorite podcasts of the whole year was with Sam Portland and Speedgate Golf. And if you haven't listened to that show, definitely go check it out. One of the best, just one of the best. And to me, it's the best because, or one of the best that I've done because it shows how doing, just for reference sake too, Speedgate Golf basically is a progression of speed training where you do not run maximally and you just sprint to, well, granted, these were team sport players and perhaps they were sprinting more maximally in practice, you know. Um, but for the sake of their actual speed training, quote unquote, their formal speed training, um, they'd run through gates. I think it was a 10 yard acceleration and they were the, the time required, the, the object was not to run as fast as you could, but just to hit a time that was well below what they were capable of. I think they might've started with something that was perhaps only 70 or 80% of their best. And the goal was just to get as close as they could to that time, not to run as fast as possible. Um, with some technical ideas in mind and that process and slowly inching up how fast they were going ended up on test day with people like breaking PRs, older players running as fast as they had in years. And it's, and it's also, it's uh and it comes easy. 
And to me, it all fits with a lot with the easy strength model, uh, going in the weight room and letting your 80%, uh, pushing your 80% up rather than grinding at that 90, 95. Like, uh, so just going in and hitting submax and leaving reps in the tank and feeling good about it. And so, uh, I'll also say this, I always quote the Ruzon long jump study where athletes jump different distances in the pit. Like the athletes who jump multiple distances ended up doing better at the end than athletes who jumped all out every time. I think the moral of the story is this, is I think no matter what, um, more efforts at a submaximal level are important as long as there's intention. And that's the key. I think that as long as there's an intention, be it technical, if you're doing a, a speedgate golf where you can win, quote, I'm going to have like my air quotes going, if you can win and get that dopamine hit by getting really close to the time and you succeeded because that creates intention as well. I think as long as there's an intention there and there's a spectrum of efforts, I think there is only good in that. I think it gives the brain more information to utilize when it comes to that final product. I think that sprinting, I do think there is drawbacks to sprinting maximally every time. Um, And I think the big drawbacks there uh, are, there's a couple uh, potential ones at least. I don't think it might hit everyone the same way, but one is judgment. Um, When you go maximally every time, inevitably you will find, you'll have runs where you do worse and you'll have days where you do worse. And a lot of athletes, it'd be nice if we could say we could all handle those days amazingly and it didn't bother us at all and we didn't have any dopamine loss or any energetic loss when we did you know, poorly on those days. But it does impact athletes. There is judgments if you're not running as fast as you could and you're trying as hard as you can. Um, so I think there's that. There's also the idea of when we sprint as hard as we can, a lot of uh, compensations can come into play. And to me, it's that difference between a 95, 90, 95% and 100% effort. Now, let's just talking about effort here. So if I said go sprint at 90% and go sprint at 100, that 100, there's going to probably be more mental and volitional willpower and energy or attention directed somewhere. <laughs> and that usually leads to some sort of compensation that slows you down and could also get you hurt and put your body in the threat. So I think if we're under 95, then we at least for sure are getting rid of a lot of potential compensations that could come up when we're in the meets if we're in a track meet or you know it's really time to go we're probably not going to be compensating when going at 100% because now we have the emotion of the meet we have the competition we have the crowd we have all those familiar the smell of the track everything that goes with that that keeps you out of compensation mode uh, for the most part people still will do that occasionally like you'll see someone press in a relay and try to catch up with someone too hard or try to run away with some from someone too hard and pull a hamstring. <laughs> Definitely have seen that. Um, but a lot of times I think we, we don't, um, we, we need to appreciate emotion in training and how competition is fundamentally emotionally different than, um, than just practicing. So, um, a little all over the place on some level, I, again, I don't have a definitive answer. I just have things to think about and things that I like. Uh, so for me, I like a spectrum and I like intention. And so I think if we're thinking about those things and we're trying to, and always trying to bring ourselves inside the mind of an athlete and uh, inside coordination and, and, and really giving athletes a robust coordinative experience, I think we're doing a good thing. Okay, next question. And thanks for asking that health speed. I, I, that was a fun one to uh, take on. All right, so next question is Ruan O. Uh, thoughts on the pose method of running? So this is an awesome question. I'm happy to answer this, and I've had some help on this question from my mentor, Adarian Barr. 
And so for those of you guys who don't know the pose method, I think uh, maybe if you're in the fitness space, it's more popular or the CrossFit space, uh, but it's basically a form of running that, uh, and as to my best description, you're using uh, falling or gravity to, or using running as idea of you're falling and then catching yourself. And it's a form of running that relies on a lot of, it's very positional. So it's like, here's where you should be at this at this place, get in this position, at this place, get in this position. Um, and it does, what it does do, uh, regardless of what I'm going to say next, <laughs> is it does a good job of getting athletes out of heel striking. So I think the biggest benefit of it is it it really can help athletes who heel strike and get them at least into a forefoot-ish mode, and which has a big impact on injury rates. And so here's what we know about it from, so first I'll say here's what we know about it from a scientific and research perspective is we know that um, athletes who have done it uh, there's a study that had eight triathletes who did it for 12 weeks and what they ended up doing and there was another study where i think athletes did it for two weeks but both studies said the same thing is that pose method training decreased running economy so they became less economical it decreased their stride length uh, which you will do if you're not heel when you heel strike you can roll longer and you have a longer stride um, but of course, in that case, you're probably overstriding or you may be overstriding and it also reduced vertical oscillation. So people who did pose running, they uh, decreased stride length and vertical oscillation. And so I'll say this about the method. If you go and you watch the videos, and again, I've gotten help with the Darien bar on this topic, but it does teach remove, replace. So again, an Adarian bar, um, like that's a, a term that Adarian uses is the ability to, we just think about what happens in a boom, boom drill or an explosive switch where one foot's on the ground and one knee is in the air. And you don't want to put the knee in the air down before you pick the leg up. You want to pick the leg up and then put the knee down. It's an explosive cross extensor reflex. It's not, um, it's not a slow movement. And so the, the pose method does a good job of teaching athletes that remove, replace, and there's probably a good chance that those anecdotes and people who say, oh, I did the method and I have run faster and done better, uh, just learning that remove, replace can be very powerful. Um, but a, a problem with the method is that it doesn't teach, it teaches the athlete to kind of fall as a whole uh, towards the ground uh, rather than the torso staying tall-ish or in athletic posture and the shin falling forward. And so it kind of teaches, it teaches a fall, but it teaches the wrong kind of fall. And it's just the moral of the story is, in my mind, is that when we get overly positional and overly volitional, <laughs> the rhyme's nice. Um, basically, when we, when we think too much about getting into a position, rather than, uh, if you listen to the podcast with Helen Hall, where she talked about really a more noticing based system where of teaching running where which in my mind is is the gold standard if we can get athletes just to note to do drills and do move movements and notice things and then immediately use that as context and then do some running and if we can get changes that way then that's a more natural way of doing it just like the inner game of tennis just like noticing how the ball is spinning towards you and hitting it rather than a, I must do it this way. Not to say there isn't room for different shades of, of different types of cues and things like that, but uh, in my mind, the the best way is the natural way that works with the body and how we're meant to uh, go. And in, in Helen's book, even with your shoes on, she has a great way of using uh, hills, like specifically a downhill, to help reduce heel striking in a more natural manner, rather than a, a manner where you're kind of like falling forward and just working off the 
ball the foot. And it, the studies have shown that the pose method does um, use more, uh, like there's more Achilles stress and less knee stress, which makes sense. You're forefoot striking, so there's going to be. And if you have strong feet and Achilles, you'll probably be totally fine. And again, I'm not, I know a lot of people have said they've had success on the method, so I'm not totally begging on it. I think that in many cases, it perhaps it can create the awareness needed just to get someone running and operating and moving better. And But maybe then they would be better served, ultimately served the highest by doing a noticing-based and natural movement-based uh, method of system. And I definitely, again, I definitely really like Helen Hall's book on the whole uh, running technique, and I think that type of methodology is superior. So uh, bottom line, I think it can help people out, but I definitely, but it also can reduce economy, and I don't think it's the best way to teach people how to run okay uh next question was from the boy callie uh this one was awesome i really this is actually one that we had also messaged about a little bit prior to this q a uh call and that was uh in training asymmetries so basically the idea that if athletic movement is sometimes asymmetrical and athletes can even show up on force plates regularly as being asymmetrical well, should we train athletes to try to be that way? Um, and so or basically, so like in the weight room, should we make sure that your left and your right leg are equal when in sport, maybe you have your left leg stride is like two inches or three inches longer than your right leg stride or something like that. And so my take on it is this, um, in the weight room, uh, so in doing like say split squats and things like that, I think we should train for symmetry within the scope of slower and static motions and movements. I think we should try to be fairly symmetrical in a just general structural layout of the body type perspective. And I, I think, I'm not 100% sure, I think there's been some really cool stuff that um, uh, Rhea at Indiana is doing with speed and, 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 every, and EMG and awesome stuff there, and there's some articles on Stack about it. Uh, and I think that there was some sort of metric where, where equal um, asymmetry of power in a split squat position was an important element of speed, I, as my memory recalls. I'm not 100%, but I think it was. And I think that we can do uh, no wrong. I think it's a good thing to try to seek symmetry in a general weight room perspective. However, in, in how things actually play out in sport... I do not think we necessarily need to try to make things symmetrical. Like, again, like Usain Bolt's uh, one stride was signif- step was significantly longer than the other. And he also had uh, scoliosis, which is the PRIAIC pattern, which is going to mean his hips are twisted. So are we really going to try to... His body was obviously working around that. It was doing with what he had. It was using it to create the, the optimal speed. And I found that myself. I found if I do personally, if I do acceleration work and I bias a longer step off my left leg, my 10 meter improves almost a tenth of a second. And so I just think that I I do think there's a need for structural balance, but I also think how it actually plays out in movement. There's a little more exploration and interpretation. Uh, Another thing I was going to say was, and we see it in like long jump rhythms, there's a short, long characteristic to a lot of, we we set ourselves up for the jump as um, throughout our approach. And there's these rhythms that bias asymmetries. And so I think, uh, yeah, basically structurally, I think we should try to seek it somewhat um, or a lot potentially, uh, but in actual, how it actually plays out when we actually move, I don't necessarily think we need to make it a huge point of concern. So uh, great question and really enjoyed that one. I think there's a lot of uh, good things there. Okay, uh, next next question there is uh, thoughts on Ido Portal style training. I love it. I think that movement 
I think when if you are a like sports performance strength coach, uh, I guess insert title here. Um, it, when we hear movement, I think we tend this connotation of strength, like weight room strength doesn't matter, can kind of ring in. Uh, I don't think that's the case with any of this stuff. I just think that I think that the more we pay attention to how athletes move and the more we can challenge them from just a general movement skill perspective, I think the better. I, I think that that's something that I'm always trying to pay more attention to. And that type of philosophy has definitely made a big impact on me. Uh, Kayvan Persia says, what plyo exercises help with uh, two foot takeoff? Okay, so uh, simple enough, depth jumps, <laughs> very specific there. Uh, then how can a one-foot jumper get better at two-foot jumping? So this is a good question because one-foot, so generally if you're a one-foot jumper, this isn't always the case, but generally one-foot jumpers, and I'll mention a lot of this in my book, Vertical Foundations, but a one-foot jumper tends to be someone who doesn't bend their knees as much. They have They tend to not want to get into low positions necessarily when they, even when they run, but not always. Um, a lot of one foot jumpers actually can run really squatted. I did an Instagram analysis of I think Nick Briz is the Instagram handle going to doing a beyond the free throw line dunk attempt. And that guy's really squatted as he goes to do a one foot jump from really far away. But um, generally speaking, the majority uh, doing Lot, just I mean, as simple as it is, more work in the weights, the squat rack, pistol squats, deep squats, because what that does is it teaches the body to be more comfortable in positions where the legs are storing energy for longer. It's more of a time thing. It's it's teaching the nervous system to hold on for force for a little longer, which fits with like what the second to last step is doing in a two foot jump because it's it's getting the body deeper and it's it's holding it's holding the athlete down just a little longer than they're used to. And uh, I also think I also do think that just getting used to running in a more squatted position is important for that type of jump. But the timing does take a little while to come along. So again, as simple as it is, I, the the deeper weightlifting stuff does make an impact if you're a one foot jumper seeking a better jump off of two feet. <clears throat> All right, next one. Rasmus says, if you could go back to your teenage years, how would you change your training based off of what you know now? So this is one of those things where. I think people have asked me this for like life in general question. What would you change? I wouldn't change anything. Uh, I've done some dumb stuff. I did a ton of dumb stuff when I was a teenager. I mean, I did, um, although air alert, you know, it's funny because it's like, you know, repetitive jumping every day. It's easy to um, make fun of that. But I definitely, I gained inches on my jump for a few weeks on that. And I definitely learned things from it. I learned things from everything I did. Uh, And I will say this is when I was a junior in college and jumped seven foot and high jump, there was so much that came out of that year that I'm still honestly learning from in the sense of what I did. And it was almost like that year was a gift because there was so many things that were beneficial from um, thinking the high jump bar was two inches lower than it was in the fall. So every day I'm walking away thinking I had a PR and, and confidence and everything that goes with that to uh, like I would take longer hot showers after practice that's good for the nervous system and and all these little nuances that were just really powerful and effective and so I I mean I wouldn't change a thing I I sometimes I do think if I went back and also I'll say this I won't even say teenage because maybe I'll say more like age 25 26 which was a little bit more my high performance years on some level and that those are the years that I those were the years that I really figured out power and I mentioned a little bit about like the Tony Wells system and going like a Monday, Thursday, Tuesday, Friday split. And the, I had that dialed in and I was powerful. Um, but the most powerful I'd ever been, I was, uh, my standing long jump, I think was like 
10 2 on the hardwood cord and uh, I was throwing the shot put like 16 pound shot like 40 feet from a standing position as a high jumper which I think was pretty good and um, to jump 35 inches vertically off a mat that's not lighting the world on fire but I I had uh, I was I was doing some things really well powerfully but my high jump hadn't necessarily gotten better and my stride length was down and I think the biggest thing I was missing is a lot of the sprint nuances I wasn't I didn't wasn't hitting sprinting um, from a way that I think I, I should have been and I also wasn't uh, doing it in a way I think was as competitive as I should have been there's just those volumes and those uh, the diversity wasn't there. So I would do a lot more like sprint complexes mixed in with some coordination and some footwork now. And I'd probably do a lot more hurdling that time as well, just because I think I could have taken a lot more advantage of what I was doing. And I also would have spent a lot more time on the technical nuances of my high jump because I still wasn't in an overly, um, I, I just hadn't have the mentorship then to know enough about the event like I, I did in later years. So anyways, those are some things I would change. Uh, I just thought it was, it was interesting when I had gotten so powerful and yet my, my peak performances in high and triple jump weren't quite what I would have liked them to be. Um, okay. Uh, acceleration. Next question. Acceleration. Randy Peters asks, how do I utilize Marinovich training in my sessions? Okay. So, uh, I think this will probably be, I think we got time for this one and one more. So very quickly, uh, I love, um, I like super. So it, the, in the Marinovich training, a lot of the work that they do, they really disparage or discourage weightlifting, traditional weightlifting. I like supersetting the Marinovich stuff in with weightlifting. So it's almost like, so we often will times do a set of barbell work or a pair of barbell work, and then we'll go and do uh, uh, something on the ball. So some ball work. So I'm always, I like just giving, continually feeding the body something from a proprioceptive standpoint alongside the traditional weights. And um, I actually just had a conversation with Matt Cooper and, and we've talked about him and I had talked about this on, I think the first podcast he was on, on the nervous system. And if we basically, if all we give the body is a, a sagittal, linear, same thing, heavy stimuli, the nervous system will eventually likely shut us down because it needs it needs to sense, it needs to have options, and it wants to have options and routes, uh, and it can give us more power in our athletic endeavors in in that case. And so I, I like I like utilizing the ball work and proprioception work between mainline exercises. I find that's helpful. All right, last question here. Anabolic AWF says. If you are using triphasic, how do you accommodate the program to each neurotype? What are the typical changes and hallmarks? And so I'll just end with this is the biggest thing. One of the biggest things that I've done is just if you look at um, the uh, isometric phase, uh, what I've done is if you look at the Sheldon, Dun, uh, Sheldon Dunlap episode where he talks about using oscillating reps instead of a traditional four second hold. And again, let's go back to one of the first questions asked, like a, an oscillatory isometric versus a drop catch. They're both good, but they may be for different people and different reasons and in different ratios. Uh, what I've found is athletes who are what you would call a 1B type, a, a stretch shortening type, uh, that phase I really like replacing with the oscillating reps. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, if you have an athlete who's a little more muscle driven, I guess you would say, um, doing more of the static holds, I think, offers at least a short-term benefit to them. They tend to get more out of that. So I find if you take an athlete who is that 1B or maybe 2A, that real like twitchy type, and you you put them in a four-second, five-second ISO hold, a lot of times that can dampen what they want to express on some level. And so I've had good luck taking those athletes and then making that little switch. 
Okay, that does it for this week's Q&A. I hope you enjoyed listening to my thoughts. And thank you, as always, for your questions. I really, truly appreciate it. Uh, as always, if you enjoyed the show, don't hesitate to leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Stitcher, whatever you're listening to. And also, please visit our sponsor, simplyfaster.com, suppliers of high-end training technology. They have been a fantastic um, sponsor and supporter of this show. So definitely check them out and what they're up to with their blog and online store. All right, that's it for this week. We'll see you again uh, next week with another great guest.